From KLCC Studios, this is Oregon on the Record. I'm Michael Dunn. After Lewis and Clark, settlers left their clear-cut forests in the east and moved to Oregon. What they saw was a glorious and never-ending supply of trees. They thought they were in heaven. They didn't know that these forests were no accident and that for millennia, native peoples had carefully managed and nurtured the forest so that they were healthy and productive. Through colonialism, that stewardship was wiped out, and after centuries of misguided practices and the ever-growing specter of climate change, we now find ourselves in our current predicament of annual catastrophic megafires. Today on Oregon on the Record, you're going to hear from a professor at Oregon State who's an expert at blending indigenous practices with modern science to better manage our forests. By trying to better understand and cooperate with our wilderness areas, we might just be able to save them from ourselves. Today on Oregon on the Record, you'll hear from someone who believes there's a better future for our forests, and the path toward that future runs through the past. Christina Eisenberg is an associate dean within the College of Forestry at Oregon State University, and she occupies a very unique position both at the school and in the world of forest management. As an expert in forestry, but also an expert in indigenous peoples and practices, she writes and teaches about how we can both blend indigenous knowledge and Western science to better nurture and protect climate-adapted forests. Christina Eisenberg, Associate Dean for Inclusive Excellence and Maybell Clark McDonald Director of Tribal Initiatives in Natural Resources within the College of Forestry at Oregon State University, really appreciate you talking with us today. It's a pleasure to be here, Michael. Yeah. Why don't we start with the problem? Talk about the state of our forests in an era of ever-increasing climate change impacts. Our forests um, in Oregon and really everywhere in North America are in deep trouble. Um, they are experiences, experiencing unprecedented wildfires, unprecedented in severity, and size, um, often they're megafires um, in frequency. So rather than having 50 years between large fires, sometimes they happen every other year. Hmm. And in, this is related to two things. It's related to climate change, of course, which is uh, causing increasingly severe and frequent droughts. Um, and we've certainly experienced that in Oregon with the heat dome effect a few years back. Sure. Um, and it's also related to how we're managing our forests and how we are managing our forests is very different from how these forests evolved across millennia being stewarded by humans. And, 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 and before we get to that, you know, kind of if you could sort of give us a primer of, of, of how it changed or how we got here, where all of a sudden our forests, you know, certainly according to your research, just aren't, aren't, aren't being managed the way that they need to be and, and talk about sort of that, that evolutionary process and, 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 you know, kind of how it was better prior to sort of Western civilization coming in. Well, this, the story I'm going to share with you is the same story that has happened all over the world. It's a story of settler colonialism, mm -hmm. which um, is defined as uh, people coming from another culture 
to take over the lands of another civilization, another group of people, and dominate the land and dominate the culture. And it usually involves genocide and erasure of a culture. So I was formerly the chief scientist at Earth Watch Institute. Mm -hmm. um, my role there was to work with my team to find research fund research projects on six continents. Um, many of them involved working in indigenous communities, such as in Africa, Mongolia, and Amazonia, and Australia. And everywhere I went, it was the same story. People came from Europe stole indigenous people's lands, imposed European agriculture methods on those lands, and then the lands became degraded. And that what was removed was the cultural stewardship practices that indigenous peoples had been using for thousands of years on those lands. So here in the Pacific Northwest specifically, um, settlers came from Europe on and they came in the uh, 1700s, late 1600s, uh, to what is today the United States. Mm -hmm. And why did they come here? Well, they came here primarily, they were British mostly, but they came from a variety of other uh, countries because they were out of timber. They, mm. were out, they had clear cut all their forests and mismanaged them to the point that they were not uh, replenishing themselves. And back then, one needed timber to build a variety of things, but one needed timber to build boats, yeah. and boats were used for warfare. And so without a sustainable source of timber, um, they were in trouble. And to build a, a ship, you need big trees. You need old trees that are straight and long, tall trees, right? Hmm. So, so they'd heard that what is today the United States had vast forests, and, and it was untouched forests, pristine forests. So they came here and they rapidly uh, started um, clear-cutting the forests in New England, what is today New England, and running out of wood again, and they progressively moved west. Um, in the early 1800s, um, Lewis and Clark came west to explore um, the Columbia River watershed basically and claim it for our nation by um, planting a flag at the mouth of that river mm -hmm. um, where it meets the Pacific Ocean. And that meant that because of the policy of manifest destiny um, and the doctrine of discovery, which was the papal doctrine that um, was used to justify Columbus, Christopher Columbus's expedition and conquest of indigenous lands, the United States now owned all of the Columbia River watershed, including Washington, what is today Washington State and Oregon State. Um, we prioritized the United States rapid settlement of Oregon because you can imagine what our Oregonian forests must have looked like to these early settlers from who were out of wood, basically. Sure. And so this was like this vast, unbelievable resource. And then what happened was the same thing is um, rampant, um, you know, harvesting of those trees, um, clear cutting doesn't even begin to get to it done in a way that was rapacious and not sustainable. And so what happened is visionaries like Theodore Roosevelt 
um, in Gifford Pinchot, um, founded what is today the Forest Service. They said, we have to do something or we're gonna lose all of these trees. And it was about a sustainable source of, of timber. Yeah, yeah. And so, so Gifford Pinchot created the sustained yield concept and that was central to the Forest Service. Even so, in the Pacific Northwest, um, the timber harvest was unsustainable to the point that there was significant environmental degradation, uh, watershed degradation. And, you know, I'm talking like the 1950s, 60s, and 70s. And so um, we ended up creating the Northwest Forest Plan to change how Oregon's forests are managed. And the Oregon, the, um, the Northwest Forest Plan was from one extreme to the other. So from one extreme being, let's take as much as we can, you know, with a few checks and balances, but let's just take as much as we can to let's not touch anything. And neither of those is how those forests originated, how they co-evolved with humans living in them and using them sustainably. And by humans, I mean indigenous peoples. Christina, really quickly, let me just remind our listeners that we are talking to Christina Eisenberg. She's an associate dean of the College of Forestry at Oregon State University. How indigenous peoples, you know, better manage the forests uh, uh, than, you know, we've been doing, it seems. Well, it has to do with the indigenous worldview, and this is a worldview I've seen all over the world. Every indigenous nation is unique and has its unique culture, but there are certain common values. And one is that humans are embedded in nature. We are at the heart of nature. We're not separate from nature. We can't command and control nature, um, and nature is not there to serve us. Um, we are embedded in nature, and and not only that, we are probably the dumbest creature in the natural world. So there's cultural humility, hmm. and if and the idea, the indigenous worldview, is if we pay attention, then the natural world tells us what we need to do to have so that we can have everything we need, and we can also take the best care possible of the natural world. Hmm. So. Indigenous people, they cut big trees when they needed them. But another part of the indigenous values is you take what you need and you don't take more than that, right? That's called reciprocity. It's the way you take care of your family. So imagine taking care of a forest the way you take care of your family. And burning, the cultural burns, which were these very small, low-severity fires, they were set in... Um, in uh, in cedar forests. They were set in the moist forests of the Pacific Northwest and in the dry forests. Um, they were actually set across most of what is today North America. Um, they, they enrich the soil, increase the flow of nutrient to the plants, the trees and the shrubs and the grasses. And they kept the whole system a lot healthier and improved habitat for wildlife tremendously, these fires. So everything co-evolved like this over, uh, there's been human presence in what is today the Pacific Northwest for at least 20,000 years. Mm -hmm. Christina, Christina, I want to get back to sort of your, your, your central thesis about, and I believe you, you, you termed it sort of 
braiding indigenous knowledge with Western science really for a better way forward of, of forest management. Talk about that. Yes. So uh, the White House, the Secretary of Agriculture, the Secretary of Interior, uh, Congress have um, relied on scientific evidence, Western scientific evidence, to conclude that we need all ways of knowing in order to figure out how to best steward, conserve, restore our forests, our nation's forests, and not just the Pacific Northwest, the whole United States. And that um, there's actually, you know, this is in the federal register now, um, that indigenous knowledge is the very best science. Hmm. It's the original science. And that in order to best um, care for our forests, manage them, steward them, restore them, we need to bring together indigenous knowledge with the best Western science and to build partnerships across cultures to um, restore resilience to these forests to climate change. And so that's called eco-cultural restoration. Okay. Another way of, of referring to it as a two-eyed seeing because you're combining two different worldviews and when you bring them together, you get binocular vision. Hmm. Well, and that term braiding too, I mean, obviously braiding, as I understand it, you take two different types of fibers, be it hair or rope, and you, and you, and you weave them together. They, they, they take two things and they make it stronger. Is that a fair assessment of what this can do? Yes, and so this is Robin Wall Kimmer's metaphor. Um, she's a very well-known indigenous scholar. Mm -hmm. So when you have a braid of sweetgrass, that's a sacred thing, and I have one on my desk right now. Mm -hmm. um, it represents healing. And so um, using the metaphor of sweetgrass, uh, according to Robin Wall Kimmer, one, one strand of the braid is indigenous knowledge. The other strand is Western science. The third strand is spirit, what brings us together. And all over the media, you see that people are deeply concerned about like the Labor Day fires in Oregon, what's happening to our nation's forests. Sure. So that spirit is our deep, deep, heartfelt concern about these forests. That's, that's what really brings together that brave. When you're when you're talking about this, um, maybe talk a little bit about whether you've hit some roadblocks or just general receptivity of that blend of indigenous practices with Western science. Certainly, you know it's 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 often been characterized that you know Western science can be pretty obstinate and say it's it, this is the only way. And and I'm wondering, you know, has there been a need to kind of, for lack of a better phrase sell this idea to the Department of the Interior, the White House, and, and, and what this can mean for our forests? Well, actually, our, the recognition of our need to, uh, you're talking about a, a new paradigm for hmm. how we manage our natural resources. Um, it came from our nation's leaders. Hmm. It came from the Forest Service, the Bureau of Land Management, the Department of Agriculture, the Department of Interior, the National Park Service. And they, their leaders actually reached out to people like me and said, can you help us? So the greatest pushback is not from federal agencies. In fact, they are the strongest supporters of this that hmm. I've encountered. Pushback comes from 
the conservation community who is very, um, who for good reason doesn't trust federal agencies so easily because of past history. And also because they're very um, attached to this conservation perspective of no touch, you know, humans outside of nature. And that was initiated by Ralph Waldo Emerson and, and Thoreau um, early on. That was like 1840, 1850, as a reaction to the devastation they were seeing all around them. Hmm. We're in a different era now. And really, one of the tipping points is climate change. Um, we don't have time to mess around. We have to figure this out. And these old paradigms don't work in this era of rapidly changing climate. Yeah, yeah. I'm going to remind our listeners that we're talking with Christina Eisenberg, an associate dean within the College of Forestry at Oregon State University. Um, Christina, I, I wonder, too, you know, obviously— our forests are not only wonderful, you know, natural wilderness areas and, and a source of great pride. They're, they're a, uh, in many ways, uh, the location of commercial operations to sell timber and, and those sorts of things. I'm wondering this practice, this braiding of indigenous practices and knowledge with, with Western science, you know, can it, can it accommodate the scale of how much our forests are you know, used, exploited maybe even uh, for their timber and other natural resources. Can they work together? Yes, they can work together. It will require um, finding that common ground and and people on both sides being very open and having, uh, working together. And the two-eyed seeing model is about adaptive management and adaptive stewardship. And so what happens is, you cut trees as part of ecocultural restoration with great care in areas like the forest that's behind me, that's part of the Andrews forest, it burned hmm. in a fire this summer. And part of the reason it burned the way it did was because it was greatly uh, densification. So it was never as dense as it is today. It involves a very different view of carbon. We want to conserve carbon, but what's ignored is something that Native people really strongly believe in is the importance of what's the carbon that's in the soil hmm. that is into the soil every time you do one of those low severity cultural burns in the form of charcoal or also called pyrogenic carbon. Hmm. So it's a much more holistic way of looking at a forest. It's not no touch, but it also doesn't mean let's just open up the gates and actively manage everything. It means let's steward the way one takes care of one's family. Have we in the West and maybe the entire country, do we unnecessarily fear uh, forest fire? It, it sounds as though, you know, indigenous people understood the power of it through cultural burns and understood the restorative nature of it. Do we maybe just have the wrong view sometimes on, on when, our when, when our forests burn? Yes, and this is part of that colonial worldview, and it's the same thing that happened to wolves and other large uh, predators, large carnivores in uh, North America. It, we wanted... The Western world wanted to tame everything and fire was scary and carnivores are scary. Mm. And what we did not realize, it made good sense at the time to, you know, the 10 o'clock rule, let's put out every fire by 10 o'clock 
the day after the fire the next day, right? Hmm. Um, that the Forest Service established in the early 1900s. It made great sense. It seems logical, but the way the world works is much more complex than that. And so these these natural low severity fires, they prevented the big fires. They made those big fires, you know, a lot less of a threat, a lot less common, a lot less severe. So um, in the same way, with, it's just like you've done work stories on wolves. It's the same way as living with wolves. Wolves can create much, help create much healthier ecosystems. And maybe they're not as big of a threat as people think they are. Yeah, yeah. I like your two your, your term of two eye seeing and, and seeing the whole picture. Uh, we could talk about this for a long time, but we're up against uh, our time. Christina Eisenberg, Associate Dean for Inclusive Excellence, and Maybell Clark McDonald, Director of Tribal Initiatives in Natural Resources within the College of Forestry at Oregon State University. As always, really appreciate your, your words and your time today. Thank you, Michael. That's our show. With a kind of cruel sense of humor, we Westerners last summer mocked East Coasters when they complained of the forest fire smoke that invaded places like New York. To us, that's just what we have to put up with every year. But it's certainly no joke that we have to both combat climate change and protect our forest for future generations. As you heard today, a braiding of indigenous knowledge with Western science may be the best solution for us all. I want to thank Christina Eisenberg, Associate Dean for Inclusive Excellence and Maybell Clark McDonald, Director of Tribal Initiatives in Natural Resources within the College of Forestry at OSU. This show, along with all episodes of Oregon on the Record, is available at KLCC. I'm Michael Dunn, and this has been Oregon on the Record from KLCC. Thanks for listening.